0: Brianna Stewart was built to play ball. She's 6'4", and her famously long arms span over 7'. This summer, she came back from injury to lead the Seattle Storm to the WNBA Basketball Championship for the second time. Stewart's politics weren't widely known until this year and may never have drawn attention were it not for Kelly Loeffler. The Republican senator, who's also the owner of Atlanta's WNBA team, tried to stop players showing their support for Black Lives Matter. Loeffler annoyed the players so much, they started showing up in t-shirts backing her opponent in Georgia's Senate race, Raphael Warnock, an African-American preacher. The publicity and subsequent surge in donations transformed the Democrats' campaign. The result was close enough to force Loeffler into a runoff next month, which is how Brianna Stewart wound up intervening in the election once again this time from Russia. The stars of the WNBA take their talents to Europe in the winter, where salaries can be three times higher. Stewart has posted a video urging Georgians to vote for Reverend Warnock. She says he's on the right side of history. Social media made in Russia hasn't been much of a story in 2020, at least not compared with 2016, but Brianna Stewart's message from Yekaterinburg is a sign of what's at stake in Georgia's runoff elections. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, the Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, will Georgia change the balance of American politics? As 2020 draws to a close, the partisan feuding is focused on Georgia. The state's been reliably Republican recently, but in November, Joe Biden became the first Democrat in 28 years to win Georgia on the way to the White House. Runoff elections for Georgia's two seats on January 5th will decide which party controls the Senate and Biden's agenda. They'll also test Donald Trump's hold on his party while he still refuses to admit defeat. How far has the centre of gravity shifted in Georgia? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, the Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fassman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, what's up in New York? It must be a bit like Groundhog Day there. You're still doing some homeschooling, pretty much stuck at the apartment, right?
1: Yeah, there's not that much exciting going on in my home life. We did have um, a trivia night for my son's kindergarten. He started a new school this year. It was an online trivia night. And there were a lot of parents, maybe eight teams. And out of all eight, I'm happy to report that my team came in dead last. So it turns out that ineptitude and trivia is totally contagious, and I infect others around me. So that was really... High point, low point, I'm not sure. But I'm excited to talk about Georgia. My uncles live in Atlanta. My dad was born in a small town in southern Georgia. My brother-in-law is from a different small town in Georgia. So Georgia's close to my heart.
0: And John, you've been in Georgia all of this week reporting on the Senate runoff, which happens on the 5th of January. How's your week been?
2: Uh, It's been lovely. I am back in Atlanta. I opened our office here in 2010 and and lived here until mid-2014. It's a
0: city I really... Love a great deal. It's been great to be back. Well, that's good to hear. Okay, let's get into this episode on Georgia, which is going to be slightly different to our normal episodes. In that, John Fasman knows a lot more about Georgia than I do, and more even than than Charlotte does. And so, this episode is going to feature a lot of us quizzing Fasman about the state. John, you've spent a lot of this week interviewing people in Georgia while you've been there. Who did you speak to first? I thought it was important to get an overview of the state's political geography.
2: So for that, I went to Pablo Montañez, who is a political scientist at Emory University, which is here in Atlanta.
3: Historically, Georgia has been a red state. Strongholds for the Democratic Party have been the city of Atlanta and kind of the very near-rung suburbs, or we might even call them little parts of Atlanta, places like Decatur. And in addition to the kind of the city of Atlanta, there's pockets like Athens, which is a big university town, and Savannah. But increasingly the suburbs of Atlanta have have been becoming more purple or blue. Atlanta itself is relatively small compared to its suburbs. And so those changes are very, very meaningful for the kind of political geography of, of Georgia because they they kind of really shift things quickly. And what's driving those changes? So I think there are two trends. Atlanta's growing like a lot of the, the South. And so there's this immigration of more liberal voters, partly because they're coming from more liberal locations. So a big source of migration to Atlanta is migration from Chicago. And so you've got a lot of predominantly, although not exclusively African-Americans, I'm a migrant from Chicago as well. And then you've got this sort of change more at the margin. It's harder to identify, but more educated voters have been over many decades shifting towards the Democratic Party. As the electorate becomes more educated in the suburbs, that they're becoming bluer as well.
2: So the big question for this runoff coming up is how many of those suburban voters who pulled the lever for Joe Biden are going to pull the lever for the Democratic candidate? To what extent was, was, the, was the Biden suburban vote an anti-Trump vote? And to what extent was it a Democratic vote? And that's not something we can tell right now, correct?
3: Right. You know, I think this is going to be a real referendum for the Republican Party because the hardest elections to predict recently have been elections when Trump's on the ballot. The big question is, is this going to look like an election with Trump on the ballot because it's been so nationalized? So Trump's taking a big interest in it. There's an enormous amount of money pouring into the state. There's a lot at stake in terms of control of the Senate. And so it kind of resembles a national election in its in its media coverage, but is that going to induce that behavior in voters? Are we going to expect this sort of high turnout of what I might you might call Biden voters, but maybe are better described as kind of anti-Trump voters showing up? Traditionally, in runoffs or off-cycle elections, turnout's much lower. And that lower turnout has, has tended to favor the Republican Party. If the Republicans do poorly here, it, it might awaken an, an anti-Trump backbone in the Republican Party saying, okay, maybe when he's not on the ballot, the effect of Trump on elections is much more muted. If the Republicans do quite well, I think this could have a big effect. They, they could say, okay, now Trump can be a force for Republican candidates, even when he's not on the ballot.
2: That's interesting. So to a certain extent, this runoff will determine not just control of the Senate, but a perception of Trump's king-making power for the next two to four years. That's right.
1: So John Fasman, for those people who have not been watching the Georgia race week in, week out, and know the names involved, but may not know much about the actual candidates, give us a bit of an overview.
2: So, Georgia was unusual in November in that there were two Senate races. One of them was to fill the rest of Johnny Isaacson's term. He retired earlier this year, and Brian Kemp, Georgia's governor, appointed Kelly Leffler to replace him. Kelly Leffler is running against Raphael Warnock, who is a 51 year old preacher. He's the senior pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is where Martin Luther King Jr. and Sr. preached. So, it's an African American church that looms large not just in Atlanta, but across the country. So they are running for the next two years of Johnny Isaac's terms, or whoever wins is going to have to run again in two years. The other race is between David Perdue, who is the incumbent senator who was elected in 2014, and John Ossoff, who is a 33-year-old documentary film producer. He ran against Karen Handel in Georgia's 7th congressional district and lost in 2017, and this is his second race. So it's two different races, two different seats, one for two years in a remaining term and one for a full term.
1: I noted that John Ossoff's high school headmaster said that he read The Economist in high school, which is always a way to discredit yourself with the broader (laughs) electorate. But um, can you talk about the runoff? These are two different kinds of elections. The dynamics in each are going to be quite different come January.
2: Yeah. So what makes it even more unusual is that we're heading into the election on January 5th. This is a runoff election. Under Georgia state law, a candidate has to win 50% plus one vote to win the seat. Otherwise, the top two finishers in the jungle primary, which is when all candidates from all parties compete against each other, will go on to a runoff election. In this case, that's what's going to be held on the 5th. In November, David Perdue beat John Ossoff but fell just short of 50%. And in Reverend Warnock's race, he was the top finisher, but that is because Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, who's a
0: former congressman, split the Republican vote. John, in that interview you did with Pablo Montañez, he was explaining how suburban Georgia is trending Democratic. And that might lead you to think that Democrats are favored to win these two Senate seats. But the kind of demographic change he's talking about happens over a span of a decade or, or, or decades Right. So we're not saying, inferring from this demographic change, that Democrats are somehow nailed on to win these seats. In fact, I think, you know, if I had to bet, I'd bet that the Republicans will hold them both. And so why is that? Is it because of this division that we talked about earlier in the year between inner suburbs and outer suburbs? You know, we used to have this model of American politics where The cities voted Democratic, the rural areas voted Republicans, and suburbs were kind of the swingy bit. And that's still sort of true. But actually, there's this big division within the suburbs between inner suburbs and outer suburbs, which are less densely populated. And outer suburbs, where a lot of people live in Georgia, are more Republican than inner suburbs are. That's
2: right. There is that split. Now, you saw in this election, the suburbs, the area around Atlanta, voted heavily for Joe Biden. Now, the big question in the runoff is, was that vote a Democratic vote, are those voters now in the Democratic Party? Have the parties cleaved along education to such an extent that that the suburbs are now largely Democratic, or was that an anti-Trump vote? My suspicion is that it's probably more the latter than the former, because David Perdue at least ran about 100,000 votes ahead of the president. The other thing to bear in mind is that Democrats have never won a statewide runoff in Georgia, and that's because Republican voters tend to be older, they tend to be wealthier, and those voters tend to be more reliable. Now. As Pablo pointed out, polls are really bad at measuring races when Trump is on the ballot. And even though Trump is not on the ballot this time, the question now is, will enough of those voters who showed up for Donald Trump in November show up for the Republicans again? I suspect the answer is yes. I mean, maybe not all of them will show up, but most of them will. So I think that that combined with the Republicans' natural advantage among their voters gives them probably a slight advantage heading to the runoff. I'm not going to say that they will definitely win. But like you, if I were putting money on it, I'd put money on the Republicans.
1: It's interesting looking at Kelly Loeffler because she's someone who, when she was put into her role in the Senate, she was criticized by some within Georgia as being um, a pick to appeal to Georgia's professional class and not a real Trump-supporting Republican, right? So she's worked hard to try to bolster her conservative credentials. She had an ad boasting that she was more conservative than Attila the Hun. And then in the months since the election, she and Purdue have been very strong in calling for the Secretary of State in Georgia, who's defended the veracity of the results for him to resign. Doug Collins was seen as the true red Republican, the person with whom she split the vote in November. And so, you know, I I, th- I think it'll be interesting to see whether Republicans do rally behind her come January. I share your suspicion that they probably will, but she's a bit of an interesting candidate.
2: That's exactly right about Leffler and Collins. It suggests that Leffler may have been the worst pick. I can understand why Brian Kemp picked her, right? To appeal to suburban women to this electorate that he feared Trump was losing. But what ended up happening is that she had to shore up her bona fides with the Trumpist right. So she ran hard right. Now had Collins been nominated, he already has those bona fides, so he could have pivoted more to the center. I talked to someone here who knew someone who knew Leffler and her husband a bit socially and said that they were Decent people, fairly moderate, sort of open-minded people, and the Leffler that has emerged since she's been in the Senate is unrecognizable. And that sort of showed in her debate performance last Sunday night against Reverend Warnock. She was very stiff, she was uncomfortable, and you got the sense that she was sort of parroting phrases that she had to parrot to appeal to the right and make sure that everybody
0: turned out for her. I'm still struggling with the notion that Attila the Hun is a conservative role model. I mean, my understanding of the Ostrogoths is not perhaps as profound as it should be, but the the notion that, uh, that Attila was a conservative seems odd to me. Anyway, thank you both. We'll be talking a bit more about the Republican Party in Georgia and how it's changed over time in just a moment. But first, a reminder, if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you really ought to be. It's very easy to sign up you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. This week, the US section looks at the future of Black Lives Matter. We investigate labor camps in China. And there's a fantastic obituary of Chuck Yeager, the model of an American flying ace. That link again, economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the notes for this episode. Let's focus now on the challenge from the Democrats. Fazman, as we mentioned already, you used to live in Atlanta. What stands out from covering the Democratic contenders this time?
2: What really stood out to me is their confidence. That wasn't the case when I was covering Democrats here in the earlier part of this decade. You know, When I moved here in 2010, Democrats kept telling me that Georgia was about to turn blue, was about to turn blue, and it never quite did. This time it did though, and the Democrats are much more confident than I had seen them before. Last weekend, I went to one of the drive-in rallies that have been a feature of this 2020 campaign.
4: Hello, everybody! All right, I'm a Baptist preacher. Y'all got to talk louder than that. Hello, everybody!
2: The rally was in Conyers, which is the seat of Rockdale County, which is a small county just east of Atlanta. The local county Democratic Party chair and commissioner were there.
5: We've been blue since 08, and we have a a full Democratic um, slate, and we're very proud of it.
6: In fact, we're quite confident that Rockdale County is going to lend all of its support to Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in this runoff. Rockdale County, as the chairwoman just stated, is a completely blue county. Um, We've been blue for quite some time. And the people in Rockdale County are very enthusiastic about this runoff. They will be returning back to the polls. We are excited, and we will get John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock where they need to be. I heard the same emphasis
2: on organization when I spoke with Nakima Williams, a newly elected congresswoman, and asked her why the state had flipped for Biden last month. She pointed to the work of Stacey Abrams, the former minority leader of the Georgia House and a voting rights activist who narrowly lost a Senate race here two years ago.
4: This was building upon um, cycle after cycle to make sure that we got to this moment. And so it's been deep organizing on the ground from like the work that we're doing here at the Democratic Party, the work that Stacey Abrams has been doing, the work that other independent organizations on the ground have been doing cycle after cycle. And we have seen these increases each election cycle. And here we are now, we finally got the national investments to do this work to scale, to make sure that we were able to reach wide swaths of people and make sure that we were turning folks out to vote.
2: What lessons do you think you and the Georgia Democratic Party have for other states in the Deep South, like Alabama, Mississippi, that are still deeply, deeply red, but where you where there is this well of of perhaps unreached voters?
4: Organizing works. Organizing works. Organizing works. You've got to talk to people. You've got to talk about what matters to people. you got to have these direct one-on-one conversations. And for far too long, so many people have felt unheard and unseen in our political process. And it is the one-on-one conversations, direct voter contact that wins elections.
2: State Senator Jen Jordan represents a key component of this new democratic organization in Georgia, Suburban Women. She told me they'd been mobilized by the Trump presidency.
5: Trump is a little bit of the X factor, I think, for a lot of women in this district. The women tend to be um, college educated. They tend to have professional degrees. They work, or if they don't, it's by choice. Once Trump was elected, it became clear that there were folks in power that were making decisions that weren't in the best interest of of women and, and families.
2: And so it was Trump's election that sort of spurred that level of organization.
5: Yeah, it did. I mean, you know, we saw it in the John Ossoff um, congressional race that happened right after um, Trump won. And um, the women that came out in terms of organizing and supporting him, it was just, it was crazy. And from that campaign, from that congressional, really sprung these various groups of women that you know, kind of organized and have now really formed the basis of, you know, kind of political life in my district and in the suburbs of Atlanta.
0: John, in November, Democrats were supposed to be competitive in a lot of Senate races, you know, think of Maine, North Carolina, even Iowa, a few other places, that they wound up losing and we still don't fully know what happened there maybe it was just a straight up polling failure overestimating support for democrats in those states but maybe it was something else and one of the something else theories is that while republicans were organizing on the ground and had really active get out the vote operations democrats weren't because the party took a view that it wasn't a good idea to sort of bother people by knocking on their doors while coronavirus was spreading there's been a bit of soul searching within the Democratic Party about that decision subsequently. Did you see a lot more active sort of voter mobilisation in Georgia this time around? I mean, coronavirus is you know, peaking in America, though actually Georgia isn't among the worst states. But I mean, have Democrats put that concern about spreading the virus aside and gone back to campaigning in the way they would normally campaign? Or are they sticking to what they were doing in the run up to November?
2: I talked to three activists about what they were doing in the run-up to the runoff that differs from what they were doing in the run-up to the general. And all three mentioned that they were out knocking doors. And they said, you know, we're doing it safely. We're not taking this lightly. But all three of them said that they were knocking doors this time and they hadn't before. When I asked if they thought it was a mistake not to do it before, they sort of hedged. But I think really most Democrats think that they erred too heavily on the side of caution. And you need to be out there in communities asking people to vote.
1: One of the things that was brought up with that set of interviews, and I think more broadly for people watching Georgia from outside the state, is that Georgia was a test of a few pretty important related questions for Democrats' electoral prospects in the state, you know, in Georgia, but also elsewhere. So one is whether you can effectively battle voter suppression, because Stacey Abrams, made that a priority after her gubernatorial campaign. The other is whether demographic change can help Democrats win as people of color comprise a rising share of the electorate. And the answer to both of those questions is that we got from November was sort of yes, but there's a lot more work to do. And you saw that both because even though there was an increase in turnout among people of color and really large increases among Asian Americans and among Hispanic voters, It was really those white suburban voters, as as we heard, that had been crucial in this election. And so without those supporters who for Biden, who probably some of whom split the ticket in voting for Biden for president, but for Republicans further down the ticket, you wouldn't have seen such a big victory in November.
2: I think that's probably true. As a share of the electorate, African Americans actually declined from 2016 to 2020. The share of Latino and Asian American voters rose markedly. But it does seem that Joe Biden's victory was attributable to a couple of things. The first is, as Congresswoman Williams pointed out, the incredible amount of voters that Stacey Abrams' New Georgia Project registered. I think people sort of became aware of her in 2018 after her gubernatorial loss. But she founded New Georgia Project in 2013. So this is a nearly decade-long effort that paid off here. The other one, as you pointed out, was suburban voters discontent with Donald Trump. And the big question for Democrats is whether that discontent spills over into the runoff, whether those voters want a unified democratic government or whether they will cast a vote for divided government. As I said before, my hunch is that it's the latter,
0: but I don't know for sure. It's a weird election in many ways, isn't it, John? I mean, normally when the president's at the top of the ticket, any election somehow becomes a referendum on him. And you expect the out party, the party that doesn't hold the presidency to do better, all things being equal. But because of the timing of this, you know, after Donald Trump lost the election, but before Joe Biden's inauguration. It's not clear to me who the in-party is at the time. I mean, are you voting as a referendum on Donald Trump if you're voting in Georgia? It's not clear to me that you are because he's lost already. Are you voting as some sort of endorsement of Joe Biden? Well, he's not the president yet. So that's a really strange one. All right, thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to hear how the Republican Party is walking that fine line. so john so far we've mainly been talking about democrats in georgia but what about the republicans what have you learned from talking to them this
2: week i arrived expecting to find a divided party donald trump had been attacking brian kemp the state's governor and the two senate candidates had been calling for brad raffensperger the secretary of state to resign a Republican election official named Gabriel Sterling gave an extraordinary press conference at the state capitol, calling out fellow party members for continuing to claim that last month's election was fraudulent.
3: It has all gone too far. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators... You have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some death threats, physical threats, intimidation. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy and all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this.
2: Come on in, everybody. Grab a seat. At an event for David Perdue I went to this week, the mood was much cosier. Don't come on in, come on in. grab a seat. This wasn't an outdoor rally like the Ossoff and Warner one had been. There were about five dozen people, the crowd tended elderly, packed pretty tightly inside. Almost no one was wearing masks
3: you very much. And Barry has asked me to start this off with a reading from uh, a nice little book of prayer.
2: And that may be why the opening prayer at the event was all about the virtues of risk-taking.
6: Be willing to go out on a limb with me
3: if that is where I'm leading you. It is the safest place to be. Your desire to live a risk-free life is a form of unbelief.
2: I spoke with one of the owners of the house where the rally was held, Dean Teasley.
6: Why do you support the Uh, I'm a Republican first, uh, but uh, I know this uh, Senate race is so important. I think it's one of the most important in the history of our country. How come? Uh, Because we're trying to battle socialism, communism, I call it. (laughs) And uh, I feel like we uh, just have to win this one to put little little breaks on the uh, Biden administration if, if he winds up being the president.
2: Are you concerned that, that, that Vice President Biden is himself a socialist or a communist?
6: I think he's socialist, Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah,
2: And do you think he, when you mentioned if he in fact becomes president, do you think that's still unclear? Uh, unclear? Is it unclear who won the presidential election? Oh, I think it's still unclear. Yeah. I mean, I,
6: I think it was, uh, I think it was fraud, but I don't, it's, it's going to be hard to prove, I'm sure. But yeah. uh, uh, I just don't see any way that he could have gotten as many votes as he got. Because you look, I I referenced this truck driver said he drove all over the country and said he's seen about one or two Biden signs and thousands of Trump signs. So, uh, and it was that way around here. You you didn't see hardly any signs.
2: How do you feel about Senator Perdue's chances of reelection?
6: I feel good. I think he's going to do good. Yeah. Um, I think people's fired up and we're going to really get out to vote.
2: All right. Thank you so much, Mr. Teasley. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I also caught up with Tom Graves, who has served five terms in Congress. He represents a Northwest Georgia district, though he's retiring this year. He was bullish about the chances of both Republican senators getting reelected.
7: You know, the Republican Party has really been well known for being a grassroots-driven party on the local party level through the state party level. So I would say I've seen that grow throughout time in ebb and flow and intensity. You know, when I was elected to Congress, there was the Tea Party movement. The epicenter of it was in the state of Georgia as it began, and that in itself grew the party base and, and grew the, uh, the grassroots.
2: What are you thinking as you're watching this runoff happen? a Democrat has never won a statewide runoff in Georgia. Should Republicans feel confident?
7: You know, I I don't know that Anyone should ever feel confident in, in an election year such as this, where you, you're in a, a pandemic. Uh, voters are doing what they can to vote, and how they vote is less predictable. And I think this is this is important for folks to understand about the state of Georgia, is that these two elections that are up uh, in a runoff, uh, is it abnormal? Yes, a little bit, but we're used to that. Uh, we're a state that requires any candidate to get 50% plus in order to move forward to that elected office, and that's not the case in all states. You know, the fact that David Perdue's in a runoff um, is in large part only because there was a third party candidate on the ballot. He, he beat John Ossoff in the general election by two percentage points. He got more votes in the state of Georgia than any other Republican statewide. More votes, quite frankly, than Donald Trump did in the state of Georgia. And he was only a handful of votes shy of making that 50 percent threshold. And I guess historically, it's, it's neat to point out that in 2008, we had a similar situation with Saxby Chambliss when he was running for reelection. And uh, he was forced into a runoff. Same reason there was a third-party candidate on the ballot. But what was unique about that year is that Barack Obama was elected president. And uh, as well, that the Senate was one vote shy of uh, having a filibuster-proof Senate. And still moving into the runoff with all that energy, with the Barack Obama being elected president and the Senate so close to a deciding vote, he still won by 14 points. And so I would say that as we look to this election, it's probably gonna be very
2: similar. What about the party's sort of, I guess for lack of a better word, the the fractiousness of it? You have President Trump fighting with Governor Kemp and Secretary Ravensburger. Does that worry you for this election and sort of for the long-term health of the party? I think more than
7: anything, this draws attention to the Republican voter uh, that this is an important election. And, and the, the best way you can heal these potential fractures or, or and such that you described is for the voters to get out there and vote.
0: John, there was so much that was interesting there, but I just wanted to pick you up on something that Dean Teasley said, which is that he has friends who've been driving all across America and they've seen Trump signs everywhere, but they haven't seen any Biden signs and so therefore the election was probably fraudulent. I mean, that speaks, I guess, to how geographic polarisation in America makes these claims of fraud, which frankly are nonsense, more credible, right? One of the things I've been really curious to try and find out recently is whether Republican voters sincerely believe that Donald Trump won this election or whether what's going on there in those very high polling numbers that show Republicans seem to think that he won the election, whether it's kind of play acting or whether it's Republican voters passing a sort of loyalty test that's been set by President Trump, who has refused to say that Joe Biden won. What have you discovered on that question in your reporting in Georgia? Do Republican elected officials and Republican voters really believe that Donald Trump won? The Republican elected officials who I saw the most of, David and
2: Sonny Purdue, both urge Republicans to vote for David Purdue as a check on democratic unified government, which implies a belief that Joe Biden is going to be president. Now, they did say that, you know, we don't know who won the election. That seems to me a sort of loyalty test of some sort. But I do think a fair number of Republican voters really do believe that Donald Trump won and that he will be inaugurated on January 20th to 21st. And I think they're going to be in for a rude awakening when that doesn't happen.
1: I don't know that there will be that kind of awakening, though. I mean, I think there may be anger um, and there may be disenchantment. But I do think that there is the idea that people consistently view the outcome of the election as illegitimate is going to make Biden's time much harder. More broadly in Georgia, it was really interesting to me to hear the audio from your interviews, because I think when you're not there, there's a lot of attention to the narrative around Stacey Abrams and what she's done uh, with her efforts to bring more people to the polls. But listening to that audio is a reminder of the very strong conservative presence in Georgia that's not going away.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I was also struck, John, when you were talking to Congressman Tom Graves about the divisions within the Republican Party, David Perdue, Kelly Loeffler, others piling in on Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia. Now, ordinarily, you might think that a party attacking itself in public like that on the eve of a crucial election would be a really bad strategy. But I've been writing pieces about the civil war within the Republican Party for six years, I think. I wrote my first briefing for The Economist on that subject six years ago. It sometimes seems that with the GOP, the chaos and the division and the infighting is sort of part of the point, it, and the party doesn't seem to pay any electoral penalty for it.
2: That's right. I think that the, that the fractiousness in the party will have absolutely no effect on turnout, I think it's a sign of a healthy, robust party that there are these disagreements, right? The Democrats are at each other's throats a bit over Joe Biden's cabinet, right? And whether it includes enough progressives, enough people from the various parts of the coalition, I think because America has only two parties, and there are millions of voters, there are naturally going to be fights within parties. I don't think that dissent signals a, a weak party.
1: John, a few episodes ago, before the election, you mentioned this idea that Georgia might be the next Virginia, that it goes from being a red state and skips purple and becomes blue. Is it is it Virginia? Or is it more like a North Carolina?
2: I suspect that in the near term, it's going to be more like North Carolina, that is where Democrats can win some races, they probably will win a couple of statewide races, which they haven't done in a while, but that it remains competitive with a Republican bent. But the longer term trends certainly suggest that it will be Virginia, meaning that it'll be a state whose balance of power and population is instead of being split between urban and rural, comes to be increasingly heavily concentrated in metro Atlanta. And in the same way that in Virginia, the D.C. suburbs are where most of the people are and where most of the voters are in their deep blue, the Atlanta suburbs are going to be where most of the people are and most of the voters are. I'm not sure that they stay blue. I think that that one of the things this election showed is that Republicans can reach and persuade Latino and African American voters. But I think in terms of the, just the political geography of the state and where the power is,
0: it's going to be increasingly concentrated in the in the suburbs of Atlanta. Well, it's going to be a hugely interesting election, partly because of what the result will mean for the Senate and whether Joe Biden's able to get his appointments through or not. And also partly for what it means for the future of the Republican Party. I mean, if the Republican Party were to lose those two Georgia Senate seats, then I think you might expect a more decisive break with Trumpism. If the Republican Party hangs on to both those seats. I think the voices in the party, who are frankly pretty quiet at the moment, calling for change, will go even quieter. So it's a hugely consequential election for, for the Republican Party as well as for the Democrats. Okay, before I let you go, I have a quiz. The economists first delved into Georgia politics in June 1953 in a piece optimistically titled Segregation Fading Away. Dr. Rufus Clement... The president of Atlanta University had become the first African-American elected to public office in the state since Reconstruction. The mascot of Clark Atlanta University, as it's known now, is a Black Panther. The 2018 movie of that name is set in the fictional African state of Wakanda. Where was most of it filmed?
1: Was it filmed in Africa? Usually these types of things are filmed in New Zealand,
0: Most of it filmed in Georgia? It was filmed in Atlanta. Wakanda was conjured up on studio sets and via CGI, and the filming was done in Atlanta, which is occasionally referred to, at least by Atlantans, as the Hollywood of the South. It's also one of only 16 American cities to be both a state's capital and its biggest city. Name the five other southern cities to combine these two claims to fame. So, both a capital and the state's biggest city. Um,
1: it's not Montgomery. Oh gosh, what's the? It's um,
2: not Montgomery. Uh, Jackson, Mississippi, certainly.
1: This is John. John was the Southeast see, Jackson, correspondent. This was Nashville. his job. <laughs> I mean, I feel a bit like a sore loser, but I'll just sit back and let John
2: Richmond in on this.
1: Richmond is not the biggest city in Virginia, I don't think. Is it?
2: I don't know. Well, hang on. Jackson, Nashville, Richmond. No? I guess Virginia Beach is bigger. I'm going to be embarrassed if I don't get this. Jackson, I know Jackson and Nashville. It's here. I don't want to force our quiz listeners to sit here listening to me hemming and hawing. Just give me the answer.
0: Okay. The answers are, you were right about Jackson, Mississippi. The others are Charleston, West Virginia, which some people would count as being the South, some wouldn't, Columbia, South Carolina, Little Rock, Arkansas, and Oklahoma City uh, in Oklahoma. So I'm afraid Nashville isn't on there.
1: Oklahoma is not the South.
0: All these places are defined as the South by the Census Bureau. So there you go. Get your complaints into them.
1: I'm just trying to assert my authority in some way.
0: I'm going to assert my authority by bidding you farewell. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. If you're enjoying the podcast, please help spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch via email. The address is radio at we were delighted to receive an email from the American Humanist Association correcting Fasman's claim in last week's religion episode that Pete Stark was the only humanist in Congress. There are, in fact, two more Jared Huffman and Jamie Raskin. Apologies. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. A holiday special on the history of Reconstruction with extra helpings of Fasman, not to be missed.